Good evening. Happy New Year. How are you all? Everybody doing well? It's good to see your smiling faces. It's good to have nice weather. It was actually a pretty nice day today after the crazy weather we had yesterday, right? This evening we're going to begin a new series of studies in the Song of Songs. Your Bibles may refer to it as Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, but you can turn there, or even Canticles, you can turn there with me to chapter 1, verse 1. Now, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to give you guys an introduction to this book, but, but when we get into the actual scripture, if you have an NIV, it's very, very close to the version that I'm going to teach from. Now, there's a reason why this one book is the only book that I will teach from a different version of the Bible, primarily not because of the translation, but because of the layout, the format. I rely on a translation by Dr. S. Craig Glickman, InterVarsity Press. It's very, very, very similar to the NIV. However, there are some things I like a little bit better. And as this is an incredibly difficult book to interpret and understand and teach properly, uh, I need all the help I can get. So I'm going to be using a slightly different translation. You're welcome to follow along in the NIV. When we start to get through the scripture, uh, Manny's going to put the version that I'm going to be reading from up on the screens so you can follow along as well. And uh, really, I could probably teach it from the NIV, and it wouldn't make all that much difference. But there's a lot there that I would like to cover this evening. This evening serves as our introduction. We're only going to look at just a a portion of chapter 1. But let me give you a little information, uh, and then we'll pray. Song of Songs, the theme is a song for lovers, and it truly is a love song. The full title of this book in Hebrew is The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Books also called Canticles from the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, or sometimes just called Solomon's Song. The biblical view of the authorship of this book attributes it to Solomon. That's chapter 1, verse 1. The author is comfortable with Hebrew and has an extensive vocabulary because it is very poetic. It's a poetry, a book of poetry. The vocabulary is extensive. And the movement of the poem is graceful and suggests that it was written before the decline of Hebrew, which took place some years after Solomon. You'll note as we go through this study that the author is familiar with the cities and the mountains throughout Israel, the landscape, especially in the north, Uh, He speaks of the beauty of Terzah, which was the capital of northern Israel in the 10th century B.C. He speaks of the glory of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And the name of Solomon is prominent throughout the book. So, therefore, it is accurate, regardless of any criticism, to date the writing of this book between 970 and 931 B.C., There's just something about textual critics that they always try to make the text later or later in time uh, than it actually was written. Part of the reason they do that is they want to undermine, uh, undermine the text and undermine its authorship, and then they can begin to undermine God's word. But truthfully, there's no reason whatsoever not to believe that this was written about a thousand years, a little less than a thousand years before Christ. 
Now, the title of Song of Songs identifies this book as the finest and most precious of its kind, or the noblest song. So when we say the Song of Songs, we might be saying like the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Well, the Song of Songs. It's an allegory, and it describes the mutual love of Christ and the church, but it does so through the love of a bridegroom and the bride. And it doesn't surprise me that the Bible would give us a description of God's love and liken it to that of two lovers, a bridegroom and a bride, because, first of all, that's a common theme throughout the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul when he speaks of marriage. But also, let's keep this in mind, probably the most significant element of life uh, is marriages, weddings, and family. I mean, that truly is at the center of all cultures and all life. So using the picture of love between a husband and a wife or, or a bridegroom and a bride makes sense because most people, almost everybody can relate to that. And some people have a problem with that because they think, well, the scripture is using physical love and likening it to or allowing us to deduce the love of God for his people from physical love. And some people have a problem with that, but God's word doesn't have a problem with that, as we'll see. Now, it is a book with many different facets. The first is this. It's a book of mystery. It really is. It's often regarded as an obscure and difficult book, and I would agree it is somewhat obscure because most people are not familiar with it, and difficult because without the proper translation, without a careful understanding of culture, poetry, and biblical truth, you can oftentimes come to the wrong interpretation. It is one of the most read, though, and most loved books within the Bible. It was read, quoted, and referred to and memorized by a man named John Huss, who was the leader of the Albanses. He was a reformer. And then it was read and often quoted by John Knox, who led the Covenanters, another uh, Protestant group or another Reformed group. And it was a book that brought great comfort to the persecuted church in Europe during those centuries of persecution by the Catholic Church and other churches. Well, it's interesting because Jews under the age of 30 were forbidden from reading this book. So I don't think we have anyone here under the age of 30, but if you are under the age of 30, I'm sorry you have to leave. No, I'm just kidding. There was a reason for that, and and it had to do with the mature subject matter, but more importantly, it was a book of mystery. And so there, there was this understanding that to understand God's love you would have to first have a full and thorough understanding of love. And so the idea is really not so much that the subject matter is difficult, but for you to be able to read a book about love and and understand God's love through physical love, you would have to have had experienced that love. And so by the age of 30, most people in this culture would have been married and had experienced love in some way, and so they could properly understand the book. It is difficult or more difficult For someone who's never been in love to understand this book, Uh, for someone who's young and hasn't experienced life, it can be challenging. But I look around and I think for the most part, we should be okay. What do you think? Amen? Well, it's also, in addition to being a book of mystery, it's a book of poetry. 
And I happen to like poetry. I'm a songwriter, a lyricist, so I like poetry. And uh, recently I was having a conversation. It was uh, Christmas. I was having a conversation uh, with a member of our church, I won't mention his name, who does rap music. And I explained to him, I am the furthest from a fan of rap there could possibly be. Rap and hip-hop, look, I'm 58, I don't understand it, Uh, I don't know or understand how it works or why, right? So that doesn't mean I, I can't appreciate that some people are really into it, but I'm not. So we started having a conversation, and rap, apart from the way it's delivered and the culture, is poetry. I think we can all agree. The fact that it kind of distorts English or uses phrases that we or may or may not be familiar with aside, it is poetry. It requires a degree of cadence, rhythm, and certainly rhyme. So we were talking about that. We were sharing. He was sharing some of his rap, and I was sharing some of my lyrics, and we found we actually had quite a bit in common, after all. Doesn't mean I'm going to go get tickets to Hamilton anytime soon, but I can appreciate elements of rap because those poetic elements are real and do exist. But they're all different types of poetry, and I like poetry. And there are several poetic books or poetical books in the Bible. We've actually studied through all of them in recent history. Uh, During the time of COVID, actually even before that, we had gone through all of the five books of the Psalms interdispersed with the four Gospels. So we covered all of the Psalms very recently, within the last, I would say, five to seven years. Uh, We also studied the book of Job here recently on Wednesday nights, Proverbs, and just finished Ecclesiastes. I find it interesting, though, that the books of poetry in the Bible are really more about us than God. That is, they're more about our relationship with God. They focus more on the human response and the human dilemma within the context of a relationship with God. And we've seen that in all of our poetical studies. So they're a little different than, let's say, an epistle, which is a teaching about discipleship or or a teaching about the truths of Scripture. Since we've looked at all of these books recently, let me break it down for you. The book of Job really embodies the voice of the spirit. For we are spirit, soul, and body. But the book of Job is a man who's crying out from the depths of his spirit. He's suffering in his soul. He's suffering in his body. But his spirit is crying out as he communicates the truths of scripture and also communicates his great pain and suffering. The book of Psalms has the element of the voice of the soul and the emotions. So many times David is crying out from a place of deep emotion and pain and hurt, but not so much from the spirit as from the soul, how he feels. And there are times when he cries out from his spirit, but generally it kind of focuses on the soul and the emotions. Now the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and therefore it embodies the voice of the mind the soul, but the mind, the, the concept of wisdom, how it is applied to our lives, it enters through the mind where the, the emotions are more what we call the heart. And so it has a place. So the voice of the spirit in Job, the voice of the soul, the emotions in the book of Psalms, and the voice of wisdom to the soul or to the mind uh, 
and really to the will, because in Proverbs, we're presented with wisdom, and then we have to choose to obey God's word and his wisdom. Finally, or not finally, finally of the books before this book, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which we saw was all about man's wisdom. It really embodies the voice of the soul as well, but specifically as it relates to our physical flesh, our body. And so what Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes is paints this picture of man's wisdom, not God's wisdom like the book of Proverbs, but man's wisdom and, and how that voice of the soul, specifically from a fleshly standpoint, brings you to a very bad and dark place. Until, of course, you get to the end of the book, which we were in last week. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But you see, what we looked at in the book of Ecclesiastes was that fleshly experience of life apart from God's wisdom and his word. And so it becomes the voice of the soul, but really the voice of the flesh, the voice of the body specifically as it relates to our soul, our emotions, our minds, our hearts. Then we get to the Song of Songs, which is the voice of the body or the flesh as it relates to love. So in all of the poetic books, you have different facets of humanity communicated to us through God's word. So it would be fair to say when you read poetry in the world, you learn about the life of the poet. And you learn a lot about the things that that person is going through or has gone through. And you enter into either the suffering or the jubilation of the author. When you read poetry in the Bible, you are entering into the truth of God, but you're connecting to either your spirit, your emotions, your will, your body, your flesh, all of those areas of our lives that we are very familiar with. We're very complex individuals, aren't we? But the Bible has given us these books, these five books in his word, so that we can not only better understand God, but so that we can better understand ourselves. Because God desires that we understand ourselves as well as understand God. Amen? So I'm trying to give you an understanding of, we've spent a lot of time in the poetical books, and there's a reason why they're different, and they have to be studied differently as a result. Okay, so it's a book of mystery, it's a book of poetry, but it's also a book of love. As I've said already, this is an Eastern love song. It's a love poem. It's a revelation of sexual intimacy, as God intended it to be. So much of the revelation of sexual intimacy in our culture today is not as God has intended it to be. So it has the connotation of being obscene or pornographic or dirty or inappropriate. But the rest of the world doesn't generally struggle with sexuality being something you can't talk about. But because we come from a very Puritan base in our country, uh, we have this very strange dichotomy in that it's inappropriate to talk about sexual things, however... However, there is an abundance of sexual material that points us in the direction of the obscene and the pornographic within our culture. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, on the surface, we don't like to bring this up. It's inappropriate. But under the surface, people are living very inappropriate lives. So I question, what really is better? To put on the face that, you know, you don't want to talk about these things, but then behind the scenes, there's this undertone 
of sexual deviation or sexual perversion, uh, all there. It's, it's there, but you just don't bring it to the surface. It's, it's underneath the, the heart and, the, and the, the life of most people. Or would it be better to live in a culture where it's all out in the open, but the things we talk about are appropriate and not perverse or pornographic or obscene? So what the Bible seeks to do is talk about love properly. And I have noticed that when people talk about sexuality normally, okay, from, a, from the biblical standpoint, out in the open, the darkness of what is perverse and obscene tends to dissipate. It's almost as if when you talk about it from God's standpoint, you have the right understanding. Therefore, all of the wrong understanding is not really the focus. But by suppressing and repressing sexuality, it oftentimes comes out in ways that are unhealthy and inappropriate and perverse. But it is a book of love, and not just the physical act of, of, of sex. It's not just that, but the whole nature of human sexuality. See, by God's own design, sex permeates our lives. Emotionally, spiritually, physically. And Victorian prudishness is quite unbiblical. And I think it's that Victorian prudishness or puritanical prudishness that has led us to a place in our culture today where we don't really deal with these things properly in the church at all. In fact, we generally don't deal with them (laughs) at all. And so children grow up, and then, you know, they don't really know much. They don't really look at it properly. And then all of a sudden, the world introduces them to sex and sexuality with all of the perversion that it contains, which is very unhealthy. So I would posit to you, I would suggest with your children that when they are the right age, and you get to decide when that is, not the school system, when that is the right time, you speak to them about these things because it's a part of life. Sheltering them from the truth of human sexuality will not help them. But introducing them to the perverse, worldly understanding of human sexuality will destroy them. So that's a tough balance, and it's a tightrope parents have to walk today. But this book is helpful. I don't think that teenagers need to be in on this study, per se. I don't know that anything I would say would harm them. I just don't think they could really fully understand it. But having said that, there's nothing wrong with young people having a biblical understanding of human sexuality. Otherwise, God would not have placed this book in his word. And as I said before, it was the Jews that decided that you had to wait till you were 30. We have no such restriction. The Bible is frank and forthright regarding sex, yet it is never pornographic or obscene. It it never is, and you'll see that through this study. Uh, But it is a book of love. Okay, so it's a book of mystery, it's a book of poetry, it's a book of love. It's also a musical play, like any play you could go to see in a theater. But the play is about love. And its main characters are Solomon, who is the young king, and the Shulamite, who's a young country girl. Of course, all good love stories have, all appropriate love stories have a protagonist, or two protagonists, right? A man and a woman, they fall in love, and that's what we see here in this Eastern love poem. We're going to see their courtship, we're going to see their wedding day, their honeymoon night, the conflict that comes up in relationships, the resolution to the conflict that comes up in relationships, how you restore intimacy after there has been conflict. Uh, And then we'll end our study in a couple of weeks uh, 
with a teaching on learning to love appropriately and looking for love. Because either you're in a relationship learning to love or you're hopefully looking for a relationship, uh, a love relationship. And both of those studies will be very practical for us. So it is a figurative story about communion. Communion. Now, because it features a love story doesn't mean that it doesn't have spiritual value. Or that you can't look at the sexual relationship between this man and this woman and not find good spiritual teaching on the relationship that we have as the church with Christ. The Bible likens the church to Christ in that relationship the same way that the bridegroom and, and, and the bride are in love in this book. So we'll see that that's very applicable. But it's a love story or a figurative story about communion between God the Father and mankind, Christ the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, and of course also between the Holy Spirit, the comforter, and the persecuted suffering church, which is why this book was so helpful to the persecuted church throughout the centuries. Now, we're going to start our study this evening just a little bit in chapter 1. We'll pray first, but as we get into the chapters 1 through 3, we're really looking at snapshots. Now, this has to do with the birth of their romance. And as is often the case, many times when you fall in love or you are falling in love or you, you are in a relationship you will take pictures. If not mental pictures, you will take actual pictures of the moments you spend with that person. And we're going to see that there are 10 snapshots. Some of them are selfies. Some of them are just pictures uh, taken by the bridegroom of the bride or the bride of the bridegroom. And some of them are pictures of both of them. And so we're going to see this. We're going to look at just four this evening as we get into our study. But that gives you a good understanding and a really great introduction as to how to even begin to understand this book. And then I think you'll see as we go through it, it's really not that difficult to understand. It makes a lot of sense. And it's incredibly helpful to the person who wants to improve their love relationships or have a healthy love relationship in the future And it's also incredibly helpful to the person who wants to grow more deeply in love with their Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this introduction. And we ask now that as we begin this study, as we look into your word, that you'd give us wisdom beyond our years and the ability to understand things that are probably somewhat beyond us. And Lord, for those of us who have a lot of experience, and for those of us who may have very little experience, all of it points to our love relationship with you, and with that we desire more experience. And so, Lord God, we submit to you this study, and ask that you'd help us to receive all that you have for us this evening, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask Manny to put the first slide up. We're just going to look at ten of these slides, and you'll see on the screen... Uh, the interpretation or the uh, translation that I'll be using. As I said, Dr. S. Craig Glickman uh, used his knowledge and, and scholarship to come up with what I think is the best that I've seen translation and understanding of this book. Let's start with the first verse, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Okay, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's simply our introduction, and we've already talked about that already. 
Then we get to what is in verses 2 through 5, the character of the king. And this is a snapshot, that is, it is a picture taken by the bride. So the bride is giving us, in this love poem, a snapshot or a picture of the character of the king with whom she is in love with. Okay? So let's read verses 2 through 4. I'll read it for you. The bride speaks, and she speaks in soliloquy. Uh, That's a fancy word, which means she speaks to herself. If you've ever seen a play, uh, there are often times when someone will go to the side of the stage and begin to speak. And they'll be basically sharing with you what they're thinking, because guess what? In a play, you have no idea, generally, unless someone says it out loud. So she says, Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for better than wine is your affection. For fragrance, your perfumes are pleasing, and perfume poured forth is your name. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me to his chambers. That would be the palace chambers, not his private chambers. And then the daughters of Jerusalem, they function as the chorus. And so in this love poem, there is a chorus that will sometimes respond and speak to either the audience, which is us, or to the lovers themselves. And they say here at the end of verse 4, We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will extol your love better than wine. And the bride says to herself, Rightly do they love you. And so you can see why it's so important to have a good translation. This reads like a play because it is a play. And if you're just reading it without any understanding as to who's speaking, you're going to get lost. So that's why I'm using this translation. It's very helpful. Okay, in looking at this, though, we learn a few things. One of the things we learn is, again, the character of the king as seen by or understood by or observed by the bride. And we see the role of the bridegroom. If you look at verses 2 and 4, we learn that she asks that he may kiss her. I've seen a number of romantic comedies and, you know, romance movies and movies about romance. And in today's world, it doesn't seem, uh, well, to me, I guess I'm older, so it doesn't seem appropriate to me that the woman would make the first move. Uh, I guess I'm old. But I always thought of it as, you know, that's the man's responsibility because he's the leader. And maybe I'm old-fashioned. Maybe I'm out of date. But in the Word of God, you see a woman who really wants the man to lead. And so she paints this picture of him as a leader, and she asks that he may kiss her. It is completely appropriate in that context, but notice it's the man who leads. And she asks that he may draw her after him. Again, who is leading? The man is leading. And they can run together. They can be together if he initiates and she responds, and she can encourage him initiating the relationship and the intimacy in their relationship and the affection in their relationship. But notice she understands that it's still really his responsibility to lead. Many times women will be assertive, I'll use that word, in a relationship. And then they get involved in the relationship and they complain that he's not more assertive. I wonder why. I really do believe that women have to learn some patience in those areas and let the man lead. And then that way they won't be complaining for the next 12 years that the man doesn't lead. He never takes the initiative. He never never leads. Well, if 
if you don't let him, ladies, then he won't, generally. So that's a very important truth. Uh, one of the things, my wife and I have taken ballroom dancing over the years, and we enjoy ballroom dancing. I don't really enjoy other types of dancing, but ballroom dancing, yes, very much. And when we do, it's clear. One person has to lead. And in ballroom dancing, it is the man. The man leads. Now, my, our dance teacher used to say that it's the job of the man to lead, right? He brings strength to the dance. He frames, he, he brings strength to the dance. But it's the woman's responsibility to follow and to bring beauty to the dance. So we have our roles to play. They're different. If you look around, you see men and women are very different. Our culture today is very confused about the difference uh, between men and women, but they're, they're really, I mean, I think we're lying to ourselves if we think that when you look at a woman or look at a man, you can see anything else or other than a man or a woman. I mean, there are differences, right? And if you're married, you learn very quickly lots of differences, not better or worse, although you're in it for better or worse, difference, differences. So, he did bring her to the palace chambers. That is, she initiated uh, a part of the relationship. She, she basically uh, encouraged him, and he initiated the relationship, and he brought her to his home, to the palace. That's how this poem goes. So we see the role of the bridegroom as a leader, but we also see the character of the bridegroom, and he was very attractive to her. Not attracted, although he was, I said attractive to her. And listen, remember that this is talking about human sexuality. Uh, I have said this many times. My wife and I used to do young adults ministry and did a lot of premarital counseling over the years and many, many teachings on these subjects. And I can tell you right now, there has to be attraction in a relationship. Now, I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking. But, Pastor Tim, there are so many arranged marriages. How does that work? Uh, well, most arranged, arranged marriages are arranged by people who love you the most. And they have a general understanding, for the most part, of the kind of person you might be attracted to. And in addition to that, they generally ask questions. And as far as I know, most people, especially today, look at a photograph of the person and actually read a bio of the person before they agree to meet and move forward with an arranged marriage. And then, of course, there is that moment where, even in arranged marriages, where the couple will meet. And in that time of meeting, if there are any major red flags or concerns, they will be expressed. But yes, attraction is important. But let me just say this. It isn't all just the physicality of the relationship. Because I can tell you right now, I used to like to say it this way, because I'm a big Billy Joel fan. There had to be a reason why Billy Joel didn't stay with Christy Brinkley. And it wasn't what she looked like. Now, I'm not trying to diss Christy Brinkley, but there had to be something. Because you can't sit there and say, well, I wasn't attracted to her anymore. Sorry, that wasn't the truth. We know that much. So it's like, what was it? Well, we don't know, but what we do know is that attraction takes into consideration so much more than just what someone looks like. And we look at the character of the bridegroom and why he was attractive to her. First of all, she compares him in verse 3 to fine cologne. 
Now, that's not saying that she was attracted to his cologne. That's saying that like people are attracted to a pleasant smell of cologne, although I have to be honest, not a huge fan of those types of smells. A little bit goes a long way. You know what I'm trying to say? Too much is too much. Um, there was a guy I used to work with, and uh, I won't mention any names, but you could tell if he had visited our cube or our department because he left an afterglow. That is, he would come into the department, and people were like, oh, so-and-so was here. And you, you didn't see him, but you knew he was there because he left sort of an aroma behind. And it wasn't a displeasing aroma, but yeah, sometimes too much is too much. But what she's trying to say here is when she says, for fragrance, in verse 3, your perfumes are pleasing, and perfume poured forth is your name, therefore the maidens love you. What she's really saying what he's really bringing to our attention is that he is like fine cologne. That is appealing, attractive. It's a metaphor, exactly. Fragrant and refreshing and loved by everyone, loved by the maidens. That is, everyone thinks he's attractive, not just her. He's appreciated by other women more than wine. And wine is used in this poem many times to describe love. Uh, and the intoxicating aspects of love and romance. And so more than wine, appreciated by the other women, more than wine. And uh, we see that in verse 2, for better than wine is your affection. And this is confirmed by the bride. She says, rightly do they love you. And so this makes his leadership very easy to submit to. And that is the key to being a good leader. A good leader shouldn't have to convince people to follow him. And if nobody's following you, you're not a leader. And, and, and whether we're talking about the world and politics or we're talking about a relationship that's based in love, nobody wants to follow someone they, they aren't attracted to and they can't trust, and they're not going to follow someone that's not pleasing to follow. So you may have a boss that's very difficult to follow. Uh, well, that's because that person isn't being the kind of leader they need to be. I remember when I worked in the corporate world, we had some leaders, that is, supervisors and managers, who were very difficult to follow because they weren't very good leaders. You know, you can disagree with a, a good leader, but you'll follow that leader because they're easy to follow. And so that really is what she's talking about here in poetic verse. The fact that the role of the bridegroom in this snap that, snapshot that she takes of this king she describes him as a leader and attractive. Okay, so that's how we look at that poetry and how we interpret it. Now, in verses 5 through 8, we see the character of the bride. We've looked at the character of the king. Now we look at the character of the bride. And this is a snapshot. This is a selfie. This is a snapshot taken by the bride. This is how she sees herself. And so many of us, we have snapshots of ourselves as it relates to relationships. People who see themselves as the all to end all, well, they're very arrogant. And then there are people who don't see themselves properly because they don't have a good view of themselves. Maybe they're a little too self-conscious. They're self-conscious. Or they don't, they don't look at themselves and appreciate who God has made them to be. And so as she takes this snapshot of herself and she shares it with us in verses 5 through 8, uh, we read this. As she speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus, now she's not speaking to herself. She's speaking to them, uh, her competition in some ways, because they all loved the king. 
She says, dark am I, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me, for I am dark. The sun has scorched me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They appointed me caretaker of the vineyards, but of my own vineyard, which belongs to me, I have not taken care. And then the bride says to herself in soliloquy, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you rest them at noon, lest I become as a veiled woman by the flocks of your companions. Finally, in verse 8, the daughters of Jerusalem say this to the bride, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Now listen, this is a poem that we cannot really relate to because we don't live in the ancient culture of Israel. We don't live on the hills of Israel. We don't live in the countryside. There's so much that we really can't relate to, but I'll do my best to explain why this conveys such truth about love. First, here's one thing. She's very self-conscious, as I'm sure you can see already. In verses 5 and 6, this is her character as viewed by herself. She is self-conscious. Why? Her dark skin shows that she was outside a lot, which means that she was, in this culture, a common laborer. The nobility didn't go outside, therefore their skin was much fairer. But because she was outside tending to a vineyard, a working woman... But because she was outside, it it, it showed on her face, on her skin, that she was darker than other women. And she is made more conscious as the women of the court stare at her. These women of the court that don't work in a vineyard are very fair. And they look at this woman and she immediately compares herself, which, by the way, ladies, is something that women are very good at doing. They tend to, when they look inwardly, they look at themselves and they compare themselves to others. And because of that, here she does this, and she's made more self-conscious. Compared to the fair-skinned women around her, she feels the need to explain herself. Well, I'm a, a keeper of a vineyard, and my own vineyard I have not kept. And that, of course, is poetry. But she is naturally attractive. She's genuine. She's humble. She's not proud, but she also feels the need to explain her appearance. But the character of the bride is not only that of being self-conscious, as we've seen, it's also that of self-respect. And I will say this, it's one thing I think everyone, not just women, everyone has a moment where they're a little self-conscious, but, but how many of us carry ourselves with self-respect? Don't expect anyone to respect you if you don't respect yourself. And in today's culture, women especially, men as well, but women especially, need to respect themselves. If you respect yourself, if you carry yourself with self-respect, others will respect you or will at least be challenged to respect you. As Aretha Franklin said, right? R-E-S-P-C-T. That is very, very important that a woman demands respect. Amen? Men too, but women especially, and especially in this culture at that time. Now, in verses 7 and 8, we read it already. She says to herself, in the hearing of the daughters of Jerusalem, she says, Tell me, O you, 
whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you rest them at noon, lest, notice, I become as a veiled woman by the flocks of your companions. In other words, I don't want to do anything or appear to do anything inappropriate. I have too much respect for myself to go chasing after you like a woman in the street. She's not going to do that. And that's why she's trying to figure out where he is so she can go to him, not just go out into the streets seeking him openly like that. That would not be appropriate. She, didn't want to des- she did not desire to appear improper in seeking the one that she loved. And she didn't want to appear aggressive and available to everyone else. Now, that's very interesting because in our culture, when a woman is very assertive and very aggressive towards a man's attention, it gets the attention of more than just the man she wants his, his, the attention from. And so that's why it's important that women carry themselves with self-respect because men are men. And if a woman gives the signals that she's interested in a relationship, unfortunately, the way it is, is that men will oftentimes pay undue attention to someone like that. So that, that we're talking about modesty. We're talking about a person carrying themselves with self-respect, which she did. And these are all key components to finding a good relationship and having a good relationship. It really is, as we'll see as we go through our study. It's really a roadmap, uh, a blueprint for that. Uh, she appealed to the king, and she appealed to him as a shepherd, and appreciated his character. Now, this is language, again, we're not familiar with, but she is, and, and he is. Appealing to him as a shepherd. Notice, uh, pastor your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Now, he's a king, and a king acts as a shepherd. But she's using language that could be understood. It's poetic language. She's looking for where he is. Very simply, she's trying to find him. And she appreciated his character. And she makes that clear. Notice the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, they, they, uh, they are a little sarcastic with her. You know, they, they say, well, if, you don't, if you do not know, if you don't know where he is, oh, most beautiful of women, go forth uh, on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. So if you're interested, then get out there and make it happen. But that is not who she is. She's seeking her shepherd. She's seeking the one she loves. She's not seeking to debase herself or to lower herself and compromise her self-respect. So that comes out a lot in this poetry. There's a lot there, I know. Uh, so her values in courtship were quite admirable. She did not make herself too readily available, but she made herself available to the right person. I have seen people not have a successful relationship because they don't make themselves available to the right people. And I've seen people not have successful relationships because they make themselves available to the wrong people and too many of them. But for women especially, I think it's vitally important, self-respect, self-respect. And that is the picture of the bride, though self-conscious, she is So she has self-respect. And so we have a king that's a leader and he's attractive. We have a woman who is somewhat self-conscious, but she's also one who carries herself with respect. Okay, verses 9 through 11, we have the third snapshot, third of 10. We're only looking at four tonight. And this is a snapshot that's taken by the king. It's a snapshot of the bride, the character of the bride. And he describes her in wonderful ways. Look at verses 9 through 11. I'll read them with you, and you'll see it on the screen. Uh, 
This is the king speaking to the bride. To a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh, I liken you, my darling. Lovely are your cheeks with ornaments and your neck with strings of beads. And then the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus, they speak to the bride. They say, chains of gold will we make for you with points of silver. And it's poetry. And it paints a beautiful picture. In these verses, we see the character of the bride as seen by the king. And he sees her as uniquely noble and beautiful. And he says so. He didn't notice her neglected appearance. He noticed her true character and her true appearance. He didn't get caught up in the outward. He was focused on the inward. Now, that's not to say that the outward is entirely without merit. I'm not saying that there isn't a purpose in being attracted outwardly to someone. But notice he is speaking mostly about the fact that she is a uniquely noble individual. And he didn't focus on the color of her skin because she was out in the sun. That, he didn't see any of that. She did, but he did not. He communicated his feelings about her verbally. By the way, I want to say this to guys. This is essential in any successful relationship between a man and a woman. Women are much better at communicating their feelings generally. Men are not. Men need to, we need to communicate our feelings, not just through the things we do, which is much more comfortable for most of us. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I have a little practice. When I make oatmeal in the morning and my wife is at work, okay, I work from home, I have an office at home, and I'm working and I make oatmeal, I always make twice as much, and then I leave half of it for my wife. So when she comes in the door, there's what I call, I love you, oatmeal. Okay, because I made the oatmeal for you. It's my way of saying, I love you. But when we first met, my wife didn't understand that my love language was doing things. Many men operate this way. Not all, but I do. And so acts of service is the love language. So I do things, right? I do. I fix. Uh, I create. I, I, I try to do those things. And, and that's the way I communicate my love. But my wife has gotten that after 35 years. Okay? She understands that now. She sees the oatmeal. Oh, he loves me. But it didn't work that way in the beginning. I, I had to make sure that, don't you love me? I made you the oatmeal. We, we speak different languages many times. And this differs from person to person. But, but, but clearly, there, there's a disconnect. If I don't communicate verbally, you know I made that oatmeal because I love you. Ah, now, every time I do that, I communicate that I love her. So I have to verbally communicate what I mean when I do, if my wife is going to understand verbally communicated feelings or non-verbally communicated feelings, right? Amen? So you see, these things are vitally important. We're going we're to see a lot of this kind of stuff that's really good for applying to relationships. And I think generally men are criticized by women for not communicating their feelings. But here's the truth. If you simply explain your actions, then your feelings will be more properly and correctly understood. So we tend to not explain our actions. We just do things, those of us who communicate that way, communicate love that way, without explaining what it means to us and why we did it. So hopefully that helps a little bit, gets you out of the doghouse now and then. It does for me. 
So here he communicated his feelings about her verbally. And listen, through the eyes of the king, she was beautiful, even in modest apparel, even when she wasn't all dressed up. And by the way, I don't know, I can't speak for all men, but I can tell you something that I have never in my life thought that too much makeup was a good thing. I'm just going to tell you. So when I see, sometimes I'll see, there's a particular uh, billboard, and it's for these eyelashes and all this like makeup and stuff like that. And they have this woman on there that looks so, <laughs> I want to say fake, uh, overdone, let's say it that way. And I see the picture, I'm like, whew, not interested. It, it's just, for me personally, I am not attracted to that over-the-top cosmetology. How about I say it that way? That just doesn't do it for me. However, in the right place at the right time, things like makeup and, you know, being dressed up, it's appropriate to certain circumstances. But notice the king, she's not all dressed up, but he sees her beauty. And I'll tell you what, it's a, I personally think, I'm speaking for myself, that it's much easier to see physical beauty when it's not obscured by all of those things. Uh, what are they hiding? You know, that's, 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 that's right away I'm suspicious. What are you hiding, you know? If you've got that much makeup on, <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. So we'll continue and move on from here. So, but never underestimate the effect that praise can have. This is true for women. This is true for men. Praise has a profound impact on us. And so never underestimate that. And that's exactly what he does here. He praises her in very wonderful ways. Uh, He's sensitive to her needs. He provides appropriate dress for her in the future. Notice he says, uh, they say chains of gold will be made for you with points of silver, but lovely are your cheeks with ornaments and your neck with strings of beads. So uh, what woman doesn't like jewelry, right? But the idea is that he recognizes that she doesn't have those things, but he is willing to give her the appropriate dress for the palace. You know, so he's thinking about her. He's sensitive to her needs. He's providing the appropriate dress for her in the future. So again, never underestimate praise, but also recognize that you have to be sensitive in the way you communicate and in the things you say. So there's a lot there in those few verses. So his respect is now bestowed upon her by those once somewhat sarcastic maidens when they say in verse 11, chains of gold will we make for you with points of silver. They got the memo, the king is in love with her. And so all of this comes out in this text. Last snapshot and then we'll close. We have the character of the king. We started with the character of the king in a snapshot taken by the bride and we end with a character of the king, the character of the king in a snapshot taken by the bride. Okay, so we started with her picture of him, then we had her picture of herself, then we had his picture of her, now we go back to her picture of him. And we pick it up in verse 12. While the king was at his table, my nard, which is a a fragrance, uh, it's uh, like, like an essential oil, uh, a perfume. While the king was at his table, my nard gave its fragrance. A pouch of myrrh is my beloved to me, which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Of course, very flowery language, very passionate language, but also very poetic language. But what is it saying? 
Well, here we have the character of the bridegroom in verses 12 through 13. She enjoyed thinking about him. That's what she's telling us, like her fragrance. The fragrance lingered on her the way her thoughts about him lingered. Like the perfume sachet, she was constantly aware of him. She also thought of him at night when she was away from him. Basically, what she's saying is, you're always on my mind. Willie Nelson, right? <laughs> or Julio Iglesias, I think he might have done that one too. No, that was to all the, uh, to the what is it, to, to all the girls I've loved before, right? But that song has been done by a number of people. But I do know that Willie Nelson wrote that one song, all right? So what we do know is that he is always on her mind. That's what she's saying in verses 12 through 13. She desired to be with him. By the way, if you're in a love relationship and you don't desire to be with the person, there's a problem. If your favorite moment, married guys, is when your wife goes to work, if that's your favorite moment of the week, you got troubles. You need to work on that. Being apart shouldn't be better than being together. And that goes for a relationship before marriage and certainly, most especially, when you're married. So here she is. She enjoyed thinking about him, like her fragrance, like the perfumes, constantly aware of him, thinking of him at night when she was away from him. And listen, this is a love poem, so it did say the word breasts. Yes, the Bible does say that word. And it's going to get a little bit even more heated as we get through this love poem. So get used to it. Finally, in verse 14, we have the character of the bridegroom communicated again by the bride. And and what she's going to say now is not only did she desire to be with him, he's unique and he's special. She felt that way about him. He felt that way about her. That's the way you should feel about someone you're in love with, right? Okay. Notice in verse 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now that means very little to us, but Engedi was an, it still is, an oasis in the desert. And what she's doing is comparing him to an oasis in the desert, which is refreshing. You long to be an oasis when you're in the, in the desert. You long to be in that kind of place. And we can't relate to that. Some people know what it is like to live in, in, in countries or, or parts of the world where there's desert. And you understand an oasis is where you want to be. So that communicates that through metaphor and allegory. She wanted to be with him. And like the loveliest flowers in that oasis, this man is very special to her. So, like a cluster of henna blossoms in this oasis in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, let me just say this as we close. To feel less than this, what we've described tonight, from the woman and from the man, to feel less than this would cast the doubt on the advisability of marrying that person. Like, if you don't feel this way about somebody, you probably are not ready, or maybe you shouldn't get married. And if you are married and you don't feel this way, then it's time to roll up your sleeves and figure out why and what went wrong. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the ideal, in God's word, of love between a man and a woman. And so it gives to us the ideal. It's not perfect, but it's ideal. It's what we're supposed to aspire to. Now, as we close, I just want to say, I'm going to leave a lot of this to you, because I think the meditation that comes next is 
how are we like the bride in our relationship to the bridegroom who is Christ? Do we feel that way? Can you relate to the things that the bride says, how she sees herself and maybe sometimes as unworthy? Uh, Maybe we desire to be with the Lord. I hope you do. Uh, You know he desires to be with you. We know that. And so look at the bride and the things she says. Most of what's said here is is the bride speaking. And maybe this week meditate on it and, and try to look at it not just the way I've taught it and explained it, which is the primary interpretation. Maybe it's best I don't explain it completely. Maybe it's best if we take the time in our own quiet time on our own, by ourselves, to look at verses 1 through 14, put ourselves in the place of the bride and answer the question, am I in love with the Lord? Is this how I feel about the Lord? Not about coming to church, not about ministry, about the Lord. And I think you'll find that that meditation will do great things for your love for God. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study. It is a very different study than we usually do here at Calvary Chapel, but it is your word. And we're so grateful that you've given us the ability to understand it, to make application and hopefully improve our love relationships. And if we're not in one yet, that when we are, we would be better prepared for such a thing. Lord, we also pray that you show us just how much, like the King, you love us and how we are encouraged to love you in return. Lord, you loved us so much that you sent your only son to die on the cross. He rose again on the third day and ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, we know this truth of the gospel. But I pray that every heart that studies these words would seek to not only love but be loved by you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.